When news breaks, go beyond the headlines with the new MSNBC app. Get real-time analysis from live blogs to in-depth essays, video highlights from your favorite shows and hosts, and the latest updates on the 2024 election. Go beyond the what to understand the why. Download the app now at msnbc.com slash app. Tonight on The Readout. This is a very sad day for America. This was never supposed to happen in America. We are literally trying to imprison political opponents. We're better than this. She should be in prison. Let me tell you, she should be in prison. Threatening me with 400 years in prison for possessing my own presidential papers. It's just awfully good that someone with the temperament of Donald Trump is not in charge of the law in our country. Because you'd be in jail. After all those years of lock her up, Trump and his rapidly shrinking inner circle don't see the hypocrisy of whining about the possibility of Trump going to prison as his lawyers test out long-shot defenses for the serious charges he faces. And vindication is complete in Tennessee. The two expelled state reps win special elections to keep their seats. One of them, Justin J. Pearson, joins me tonight. But we begin tonight with one of the most striking aspects of Donald Trump's third arraignment yesterday, besides the fact that a former president of the United States has been arraigned for crimes three times. And it is that all of his frenzied truth social posts and for all of his Republican speechifying and about about political prosecution, the man who showed up in a Washington courtroom on Thursday was basically alone. None of his family came to support him. No Melania, no Ivanka, no Jared, Don Jr. or Eric. And they can't even blame the location because they didn't show up for his Florida or New York arraignments either. And, And technically they live or have lived in both places. Besides his lawyers and staff, including Walt Nauta, his valet and Florida co-defendant, Trump had nobody. It's a sharp contrast to the man who stalked the red carpets and celebrity parties of New York decades ago, back in his celebrity real estate developer days in the 80s and 90s. His proximity to fame expanded even further during his run on NBC's The Apprentice and the follow-up hit, the follow-up hit show, The Celebrity Apprentice. We're talking rappers, athletes, journalists, TV stars, all were friends of his or at least hung out with him. Even Bill and Hillary Clinton attended his wedding to Melania in 2005. Trump had an enormous circle of people who wanted to be around him. All of that changed, of course, when he got involved in politics. His reputation took a hit soon after he embraced the racist idea of birtherism and even more so after he called Mexicans rapists. And of course, there was the Access Hollywood tape. But even after all of that, he still had high profile supporters, including military generals and prominent businessmen who clamored to join his administration. Even Mitt Romney begged to get on board. Remember that humiliating dinner they had together? But Donald Trump ultimately drove most of them away, too, thanks in no small part to the attempted coup where his supporters beat up police officers with flagpoles and threatened the lives of elected officials. Other close friends and business partners like Alan Weisselberg and Michael Cohen would end up in jail because of Trump. And after the election, even his flunkies at Fox were pretty much over him, texting about how much they hate him passionately. 
Many of his most servile allies had their reputations ruined, like Rudy Giuliani, who was once called America's mayor. He's become a laughingstock because of the bogus election fraud claims he made at Trump's behest, plus his lewd revealed behavior and the whole hair dye running down the face moment. And now, as Trump is facing perhaps the worst moment of his life, many of those people are gone. What was once known as Trump world has turned into a bucket of C-list lawyers and a handful of co-conspirators. The only celebrity who wants to be seen with him is the one who said there are good things about Hitler. Even his embarrassing MAGA cronies in Congress, the Marge Greens and Lauren Boeberts who are championing him privately, most of them probably can't stand him either. And even as this election interference case highlights how dangerous this man is for American democracy, it also highlights his weakness, including the fact that he he can't even get people to show up for him anymore. Despite calling for civil disobedience on his rather sad social platform, at all three of his arraignments, there were some MAGA faithful showing their support, but there were even more protesting against him. Nothing like the big crowds he was once able to summon to his rallies and insurrections. Probably because so many of them are in jail. So much for a revolution. These days, Trump is almost completely isolated. Joining me now is Tom Nichols, staff writer at The Atlantic, and Barbara Rez, former executive vice president at the Trump Organization. And Barbara, I do want to start with you because you were there during the period when Trump was like famous, famous, right? When he had like celebs around him and the Clintons wanted to be at his wedding and when he attracted famous people, how do you think he is reacting to the fact that now the only people who love and adore him are voters he probably wouldn't want near him at Mar-a-Lago and the, you know, sycophants at Fox and in Congress? Well, there are still people that think that he can do something for them. It was always my theory. Why does he have anything to do? Why does anyone have anything to do? With him, but he's very rich and he makes promises and he delivers sometimes. So, I mean, and, and as far as the Republicans, the disgusting people like McConnell, who, who condemned him after, uh, you know, January 6th, and now he's around kissing his backside as well. Um, there, there's other reasons. I mean, all these people are liars. You cannot possibly respect this man. Cannot possibly. No one can. Uh, his followers, yeah, because they taught he he taught them that it was okay to be racist, sexist, xenophobic. So they love him and yeah. big business too, because they he let them change the environmental laws and blah blah blah. Are you surprised that Melania didn't show up for any of the three hearings, or that you know Ivanka Trump? I mean, he gave her and Jared so much power during his administration. None of the three of them have been there for him at his arraignments. Does it surprise you? Uh, no, no. I think that uh, Melania um, was n- never part of the presidency, and everyone knows that she kept a child away from D.C. until they renegotiated their, uh, their agreement. Uh, but at this point in time, after what went on, why should she? There's absolutely no reason for her to want to have anything to do with him or to support him unless she's forced to. I mean, he cheated on her and all that other stuff. Ivanka, she wants to get the hell away from him. I mean, she she's in this herself pretty deep, and, and distancing herself is probably the best thing she can do. 
Tom, let, let, let me bring you in here because, you know, you have written a, a great piece. I, I re- highly recommend people reading for The Atlantic. And you talk about the fact, let me read a little bit of you to you. And you say this is the case of special counsel Jack Smith has sounded the call, but it's voters who must answer if they wish to preserve American democracy. I mean, Barbara has, you know, made the case, I think, pretty um, you know, soundly that that's never going to happen because Donald Trump has given so many permissions to people who kind of revel in the bad behavior that they feel like, I guess, has he as their proxy lets them indulge in. It doesn't seem likely to me that anyone who likes him will like him less because he is facing 78 counts uh, of criminal indictment. They like him more. They think that that's somehow, um, you know, that the establishment indicting him for crimes that that amount to over 600 years in jail is um, proof that he's doing everything they wanted him to do by, um, you know, hating the same people they hate. Um, I, I The only hope, I think, is that um, I've often wondered if there is going to be some kind of you know, hive collapse or something where there's this kind of spreading disillusionment with him. Because the one thing that becomes clear over and over again is that he's not fighting for them, that he doesn't care about any of these people. He's in it for himself. Um, you know, we've all tried to say this to friends and relatives and neighbors and co-workers, and they just don't believe it. Uh, but, you know, maybe if they see a trial, which I think ought to be televised, they might they might finally see it. But no, there are, there are going to be millions of people who are going to vote for Donald Trump no matter what he does. And the rest of us, I think, have to, you know, take that very seriously because there's a fundamental unseriousness with the people who just think it's all, you know, a, a hoot that he's so offensive and vulgar and that he tried to overthrow the government. Um, but that the rest of us really have to have to put aside our differences and say the one thing we have to do is to get through 2024 without Donald Trump getting anywhere near power again. So stay with you for just a moment, because I know that, you, you know, some expertise in this area. You know, Robert, my, one of our senior producers, he made a point earlier today, and I think it's true, that when when Republicans try to make Donald Trump sound like he's being persecuted politically, you know, one thinks of Alexei Navalny, who's literally being persecuted politically in Russia and who's facing another 19 years in prison uh, and in apparently one of the worst gulags in the uh, in Russia, literally for opposing the autocrat leader of Russia. That is actual political persecution. I think of the people who went up against Mobutu Sese Seko in my father's country in the Congo. That's political persecution. But you you talk about unseriousness. I can't think of anything more unserious than comparing Donald Trump to someone like that. Yeah, Donald Trump, you know, gets uh, arraigned and he's um, treated, you know, politely and gently. And then he gets back on his uh, the jet with his big name on the side and he goes and he gives a press conference and talks about how miserable all of this is, where Navalny, um, you know, is basically surviving multiple attempts to kill him. Um, The Russians, by the way, the Russian regime uh, is having a big laugh out of this because they're talking about Trump um, as if, you know, the Russians are lamenting how much Donald Trump is being persecuted by the American government uh, because they, you know, they they 
they're expert trolls at this stuff. They're putting Navalny in prison. They're trying to put Navalny in prison for the rest of his life or kill him, one of the two. Um, and instead, they're kind of winking at the camera and saying, but but isn't it terrible what's happening to Donald Trump? I mean, it's really a horrifying thing. And I think more Americans ought to appreciate that. And Barbara, you know, what do you make of the irony here? I mean, Donald Trump literally ran in 2016 on the theme of lock her up, on the theme that he would like to become president and lock up Hillary Clinton and even said to her face, I'll put you in prison. And that's and now his new theme is he would like to lock up Joe Biden and his son. And yet you have Republicans, including some folks at the other network, saying, how dare <laughs> you know, the Justice Department pursue this man? For crimes. <laughs> well, I think it's, it's just, it sort of goes back to what I said. Um, he's a projector. I mean, you know, he does that. I've seen, I saw him do that 30 years ago, you know, accusing people of doing things he does, which they did not do. So it's, you know, it's he's being persecuted now. And meanwhile, uh, he's not being persecuted at all. He's he's not innocent at all, and yet he convinces people, oh, I'm so innocent, I'm so... Because they want to hear it. I think they, they, they really want to believe in this guy because he lets them do all these terrible things. And anyone that's lived in this country from 2016 must have noticed that in the early months and then continuing after Trump's presidency, lawlessness grew, uh, racism grew, uh, sexism grew, because Trump gave permission. And real quick, before I uh, go back uh, to Tom, to stay with you for a moment, Barbara, I mean, Donald Trump is now facing um, judges who are brown and black folks in a city, um, Washington, D.C., where the jury pool is going to look, you know, a lot more diverse uh, than what he would like. They're demanding to move the trial to West Virginia because he's like, I can't get a free trial unless it's all MAGA people and there's no black people in the jury. Uh, what do you make of the irony that he now does face the kind of people he literally hates um, and they have some <laughs> jurisdiction over him? Well, I, it is ironic, and, and I hope that they remain true to their values because so many people have known how bad he is and then just said, what the hell? For instance, uh, anti-Semitism, which, which I, I saw but broad, right out in the open. There are many, many, many Jewish people that will support him yeah. and overlook the anti-Semitism. There's um, even... Yeah, go ahead. Um, even black people like uh, the guy, uh, the football player, has he no self-pride? He's 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 taking uh, the endorsement of a racist, a really, really racist guy. Yeah. Irony. Irony is, is, uh, is has died. Uh, you know, Tom, I do want to ask you about I mean, Donald Trump was admonished by the judge in this case. Do not try to intimidate witnesses or jurors with within what, 24 hours, he's already up on his truth social saying the following. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. Now, he could mean that about anyone. We don't know who he's talking about, but it sure does sound to me like he's not listening to the judge. Yeah, I mean, if, you know, imagine if John Gotti had said it, um, you know, how prosecutors probably would have uh, related to that. And this is part of the way Trump um, 
it, you know, edges around uh, or tramples on the, the norms. Um, you know, when a judge says, don't do this, he's like a little boy who says, well, what if I do it this way? Is it still the wrong way? Um, and that's been part of the whole right wing um, defense of Donald Trump. You know, going back to something you, you brought up a moment ago where people say, how dare you? Um, you know, talk about jailing, you know, a former president. The, the, these were the same people um, that didn't flinch during the lock them up days. And what they're counting on, and I hope people are not intimidated by it and don't shy away from it. They're counting on everyone else's sense of propriety and civility yeah. that when they say, how dare you? You know, your first instinct was, oh, well, I, I gosh, I didn't mean to be insulting. Um <laughs> No, this is, you know, this man is accused of multiple crimes. He is manifestly, whether they are, whether he is criminally guilty, he did the things he's accused of, which makes him unfit to be president. And it makes supporting him, uh, you know, a, a failure of a, a failure of civic character. And we shouldn't hesitate to say it, no matter how many times people clutch their pearls and say, how dare you? That's yeah. their that's their strategy. And we shouldn't fall for it. Yeah, I, I, I cannot disagree with a word that you have said. Tom Nichols and Barbara Rez, thank you both very much. Up next on The Readout, it sure sounds like Trump's attorneys are still trying to figure out a defense strategy. So far, the best they can come up with is, at least he didn't send tanks into the streets. Okay, all right, well, thank you. The Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. So admittedly, I am not a lawyer, but something tells me that this is not what a defendant wants his lawyer to be saying on the TV. President Trump wanted to get to the truth. He desperately wanted to get to what happened during the 2020 cycle. He did it in the courtroom. He did it in lobbying legislatures. That's all First Amendment. And then at the end, he asked Mr. Pence to pause the voting for 10 days, allow the state legislatures to weigh in, and then they could make a determination to audit or re-audit or recertify. But what he didn't do is you know, send in the tanks, tell Mr. Pence, don't go to the Capitol Hill or do anything that would obstruct the, the due process of government. So what you're saying is basically he did it. <laughs> Just correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't the intense pressure Donald Trump was putting on his vice president to break the law literally part of one of the charges in his latest indictment, conspiracy to obstruct an official proceeding? But apparently it's all good because at least he didn't send in the tanks, except that is precisely what Trump's co-conspirator number four, Jeffrey Clark, said they were prepared to do. According to the indictment, 
Quote, the deputy White House counsel reiterated to Conspirator 4 that there had not been outcome determinative fraud in the election and that if the defendant remained in office nonetheless, there would be riots in every major city in the United States. Conspirator number four, Jeffrey Clark, the man Trump wanted to name as the new attorney general, responded, quote, well, deputy White House counsel, that's why there's an insurrection act. Joining me now is Maya Wiley, president of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights, and Sumya Dayananda, former federal prosecutor and former senior investigative counsel for the House January 6th Select Committee. Thank you both for being here. Um, Ms. Ms. Dayananda, welcome to the show. You are at a disadvantage. You're not here at the table with Maya and me, so I'm going to let you go first here. Is that a good defense, saying uh, he did it, but at least he didn't send in tanks to shoot people? (laughs) <laughs> Joy, thanks for having me. What, the first thing I thought of when I saw that clip now from John Loro is how much I can't wait to see the rebuttal the federal prosecutor in the courtroom will give to these types of arguments that John Loro just put forth. And you're exactly right. You can't say that I did all of this unlawful conduct, but except I didn't send in these tanks. And I think what's even more important is He's asking asking Vice President Pence to pause the uh, January 6th, the joint session that day, is in itself a crime. So it seems that he hasn't grasped exactly what John Eastman's theory was. It was both to delay the proceeding and reject the votes, both of which are unlawful and exactly the conduct of the of the charge count. Yeah. And, you know, Maya, the other piece that he snuck in there is this First Amendment idea that actually is starting to become, you know, on Fox. That's what they're doing all day, 24 hours a day. And they're trying to say free speech. But I'm not a lawyer again, but I, I just this to me seems like an argument that if I said, for instance, um, Whitney Houston was my cousin. And when she passed, she was going to leave me all her money. Now, I can say that free speech. I can say whatever I want. But then if I like show up, you know, at the hearings where she's giving out her assets with some fake documents and a will that says, no, 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 she was supposed to give you all her money. And then I walk away with her money. That's fraud, right? My free speech doesn't protect me if I actually submit a certificate that's a lie and try to commit fraud. Like, that's what he did. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I passed law school right here, sitting at the table with Honorary <laughs> degree. I, no, I mean, first of all, you know, look, admission, admission that I did an act, which was to try to interrupt vote counting. I just want to make very clear to listeners what that act is, not just the conspiracy to obstruct uh, a congressional proceeding. That's exactly also what the civil rights count goes to, because that law and the Supreme Court has said, you know, counting people's vote is just like putting the vote in the ballot box. So we shouldn't lose sight of what he just admitted to. He was interrupting the count and it is an admission. But it also goes if he going and saying you can have a free speech right to say I want the vote count blocked. Right. But I don't take any act to block it. You might argue that that's First Amendment covered free speech. But in this case, we have an indictment that has all the steps of acts, including multiple times Donald Trump personally went to Pence and asked him to do it. And my favorite part of the indictment, my favorite part, because everybody keeps saying, well, but where's the evidence of Donald Trump's intent? Just like Mr. Laurel tried to say, you know, he was just desperately trying to get at the facts, you right. know, so desperately that every time someone told him, no, those aren't the facts, he ignored them. Right. But my favorite part on the Eastman point is when he's picking and choosing which 
arguments he likes, which method he likes best <laughs> right. for Donald Trump to int- for um, for Mike Pence to interrupt right. the vote count, which one he likes best. Right. It's out of his mouth uh, and direct to asking for an act, making an act himself. Yeah. So, yeah, admission. And, and then, Sumi, let me go back to you, because the other piece of it is they keep on trying to say he sincerely believed he won the election and he just wanted to get at the facts. Except that that actually isn't true. Uh, Here's Cassidy Hutchinson talking about a conversation that she had with Donald Trump and his chief of staff, Mark Meadows. And this is on December 11, 2020. So this is a month after the election, after Texas lost this lawsuit that they were filing, even though it had nothing to do with them. But the Texas AG had filed a lawsuit trying to overturn the election in other states. Here is the conversation as Cassidy Hutchinson related. So he had said something to the effect of, I don't want people to know we lost, Mark. This is embarrassing. Figure it out. We need to figure it out. I don't want people to know that we lost. So you all at the January 6th committee talked to her. Presumably, she's going to end up on the stand and say that in front of a jury. So it's going to be difficult to even maintain that, right, that he thought that he won because he didn't. I think there are multiple witnesses who will say that there were statements that he made, sometimes just in passing, that made people recognize that he knew that he lost. That's one that you hear from Ms. Hutchinson. I'm sure if Mark Meadows is, test, is a cooperating witness, if he takes the stand, he would have additional evidence to that. You also have in the indictment um, General Milley's statement that we'll pass this on to the next guy. So these statements, again, show his state of mind that he knew he lost and he was clinging on to stay in office. Maya, let me ask you about this post. We did ask Tom Nichols about it a little while ago, but I want to ask you about it as well. This is I'm going to put it up. If you go after me, I'm coming after you. Now, again, we don't know who he means by you. We don't know what he means. However, this is what Magistrate Judge Moksila Apadiai warned Trump of literally. And he said, yes, I understand. Finally, sir, this is the judge, the magistrate judge talking. I want to remind you that it is a crime to try to influence a juror or to threaten or attempt to bribe a witness or any other person who may have information about your case or to retaliate against anyone for providing information about your case to the prosecution or to otherwise obstruct the administration of justice. Do you understand these warnings and consequences, sir? Me doing my Rachel Maddow uh, live reading here, um, dramatic reading, defendant. Yes. Could he be in violation of this judge's order by posting what he posted on his pretend Twitter? Well, so he certainly could. I mean, I think one of the the questions will be what kind of facts and circumstances, you know, can a judge say you just did that because, you know, he was very broad. Yes. And I think he was broad intentionally. And this is part of the, the difficulty when you do obviously have free speech rights. But no, you do not have the rights to violate the law or a judicial order that says don't tamper with witnesses. It's like anything. You want to make sure you have the right amount of proof to balance those two right. things. But certainly you would start. And you remember, remember, we had this with Roger Stone. Yes. Too. I mean, the this cross is a con- hairs, the, the judge's cross hairs. hairs. And, and, you know, so there are all, all these ways in, in which you can subtly try to send the signal that is very threatening. And as we know, Donald Trump has the capacity because of the types of folks, including organized hate groups, 
who pay attention to his feeds and take action, including violent threats, right. when he sends out a signal. It's almost like the opposite of the bat signal, right? Yeah. But that, that, so we should be very concerned about that. And I would expect the judge to be paying close attention and to be given warnings for anything that looks like it is stepping I, up. I wonder, I mean, I, look, I wonder about Walt Nada being next to him. I mean, he, it's a different trial, but he's like his co-defendant in the trial. He's there standing with him being his valet in this case. It, that's all weird, too. I mean, but the free speech thing to me falls apart. You can't get on a plane and say, I'm about to hijack this plane. Like, you're going to get arrested. Free speech doesn't say you can say, I'm going to hijack this plane. You're going to be arrested, right? I mean, there isn't unlimited free speech. Correct. And, and that's you can't why, threaten people. like everything, it's the facts and the circumstances. It's not just whether if there are words out of your mouth, you can say whatever you want. Right. But facts and circumstances matter. Okay, we're, we're, I'm keeping these wonderful ladies. Um, I guess they're going to stay with me because we have so much more to sort out. Uh, and we want to talk like about all the legal errors so far by Donald Trump uh, appointed Judge Eileen Cannon. Aileen Cannon, I should say. And that's in the other trial that Walt Nada, his friend that was in court with him, the only friend he had apparently, um, is facing. We'll be right back. On the MSNBC podcast, How to Win 2024, political experts, former Senator Claire McCaskill and Democratic strategist Jennifer Palmieri examine the campaign strategies unfolding in this all-important election. The focus is on the voters that are not necessarily in your corner now. If Democrats are going to win in 2024, we have to be able to explain what is happening at the border and what the solutions are. Search for How to Win 2024 wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes every Thursday. Alpha One Niner, commence Wi-Fi device checklist. Laptops on. TVs streaming. Game console consoling. Smart thermostat set for cuddle time. Doorbell camera. Oh, my package is here. Fast, reliable, able to power tons of devices inside your home at once. All systems go. You are clear for takeoff. This is Xfinity Internet. Wi-Fi built to wow. And watch the short film The Aviators now playing at Xfinity.com. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Back with me are Maya Wiley and Sumia Dayananda. Uh, I'm going to start with you first, uh, Sumia. Um, let's talk about the venues. So Donald Trump's D.C. venue, this is what the New York Times wrote about the jury pool. Even for people with no direct connection to the Capitol, there are lingering memories of what happened in their city in the days and weeks after the attack. The Humvees that suddenly appeared on quiet neighborhood streets, the eight foot tall black metal fence topped with razor wire that was erected around the Capitol blocking streets, the more than 20,000 heavily armed National Guard troops who descended on the city, which at 68 square miles has a smaller footprint than Sioux Falls, South Dakota. Uh, Donald Trump has argued he cannot get a fair trial here. He and his allies, people like Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz. What do you make of that argument? Because they would like to move this to West Virginia or somewhere red. And they said they can't get a fair trial in D.C. So I think those issues have already been raised in the numerous January 6th trials that have been held at the D.C. courthouse and they have failed. I do think that what happens during a jury selection process is key for people to understand that there's a voir dire, that both sides will have the opportunity to question potential jurors, that there is a real interest for the government to have a fair 
an impartial jury, just as much as Donald Trump wants a fair jury. So the questions will be, can you keep an open mind? So just because there is a presumption that someone voted for Joe Biden or as a person of color would be more likely to uh, see the evidence in a particular way, those questions would be posed to each individual juror by both sides and with the judge present. And that's how our system has happened for criminal trials around the country for decades. And that's what we expect to see here. Yeah. And I mean, the thing about it is, is, you know, Donald Trump, I think, is offended by the sort of circumstances of who, you know, some of the prosecutors are, of course, you know, Tish James and Fonnie Willis, the you know, people who are potentially in his life, Alvin Bragg. And so that plays into his feelings, I think, his emotions about it. He can't say that about Jack Smith, but he, he he's trying to, I mean, he talked about D.C. being dirty and horrible and trying to malign D.C. That doesn't seem like very effective in court. Um, but I think that even is a way to try to influence a jury pool to say that I think you're already biased. It doesn't seem like the venue would be changed, though, in real life. Right. Yeah, it's very hard to imagine that it would be changed. And obviously, any defendant would like to be able to pick their own jury yeah. uh, and ensure that there are people who might lean their way. I mean, yeah. that's part of the process to make sure jurors are fair. Uh, but I think the real point here, too, is it doesn't matter, I think, from their vantage point whether or not they'll win, because delay is part of the uh, tactic. Yeah. Very clear that they will bring every motion they can. They've already stated in the Mar-a-Lago case that they wanted the case to happen after the election yeah. and not before. Yeah. And I think that w would be true here as well. Let's talk about the Mar-a-Lago case a little bit, because beside the weirdness of Walt Nada being still his valet, still working for him, De Oliveira still working for him. And his legal him, counsel being paid for. Having all of that happening. The judge in this case, here is the new information we have about Judge Aileen Cannon. Um, she had a problem in an earlier case in which she made multiple errors. She's a very young judge, very new judge. And she had closed the jury selection for the trial to the defendant's family and to the general public, also neglected to swear in the prospective jury pool. You know, she's done some some errors. You know, she's not a very experienced judge. She also got reversed, obviously, uh, in this case uh, about issues um, in the earlier versions of the case. But he loves that judge. He appointed that judge and he loves that jury pool because he's thinking they're going to be Republicans. Is that always the case, though? Or, you know, can you dis can you get an advantage from your location or is it just the, the evidence and the case no matter where you are? Well, look, you know, I, I think anyone can find an example of a time when you had what we call jury nullification, sure. which is all that means is. The evidence was there and the jury just didn't want to go the direction of the evidence. They just didn't feel right to them and they wouldn't do it. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what the judge instructed. It's not that that's never happened. But the point is, it's very rare. You know, most people get into that courtroom. They feel the solemnity of it. They feel the weight of it. And it's a very different experience when you know you have somebody's life in your hands and that you are going to have a direct ability to impact that life. People take it very seriously. And I think we forget that people are human beings who do that. Uh, so I, I, I think the real issue is whether or not, because we know that there are people in this country, sadly, who have themselves refused to accept facts that don't fit their worldview. Yes. That's the kind of thing that has to be avoided because the danger is that you there, and I'm not saying it's a majority of the people, I don't believe it is, yeah. but that's part of what the process is designed to weed out. Yeah, and, and, and so many other, uh, this is, 
you know, with all of the other cases, I think it's arguable that the January 6th case is the most important. This is the one about our democracy and about whether someone can steal the right to vote from seven states worth of voters and put in false fake certificates to try to take their votes and try to push the vice president to commit a crime. It feels like it is the most weighty. What do you think the stakes are um, in this case and in the outcome of this case from your point of view, having been part of that January 6th committee process? I think it's uh, incredible to see this indictment with this level of detail. Much of it reflects the large work that the committee has done, as well as the structure of the summer hearings. Um, So that was really uh, affirming and validating of the committee's work. But I think what's important now is that this indictment allows Donald Trump to have his day in court and to test the evidence that we collected and gathered and have that go in front of the American people in a different way and presented in a different manner than the, than our hearings did and our report did. So it is incredibly heavy. Yeah. One of the, the sort of uh, sort of fun facts of it is how angry Donald Trump reportedly was per CNN's reporting that he was called Mr. Trump instead of President Trump multiple times, like dozens of times by the judge and even a couple times by his own lawyer. But you know what? That's the proof that our system actually works. After your president, Baby, you just Mr. Whoever. You're not President Whoever for the rest of your life. That's how it works, Donald. You're learning. Maya Wiley, Sumya Dayananda, thank you both very much. Coming up, two members of the Tennessee Three expelled from the legislature for protesting gun violence are celebrating today after winning back their seats. One of them, State Representative Justin J. Pearson, joins me next. Live television. Well, we were meant to have a Justin, uh, but apparently we have no Justins and no peace. <laughs> no, I don't know what happened, but we're going to just go on because we have two fabulous friends back with me, are Maya Wiley and Sumia Dayananda. So we're going to stick with you, ladies, uh, because I did sort of say something at the close of the last bit that uh, I think we can dig into just a little bit more. Is is you know the annoyance <laughs> that Donald Trump had um, about his? Uh, I guess he wanted to be called president. <laughs> while he was in this hearing, but he was not. He was just called Mr. Trump. Uh, and so I'll start with you. He was he was apparently annoyed that that is the way he was referred to. But you're a former prosecutor. You know, people don't get those kind of honorifics in court. Right. I mean, you are just who everyone else is. Isn't that the way it works? Nor should they. I think it's an, a humbling moment for people, uh, you know, not just Donald Trump, but other you know, CEOs who have been tried or other defendants who feel that they have this stature. And then when you walk into the courtroom, it's a humbling moment where you are a defendant. And it goes to show that no one is above the law and everyone should be treated equally. You know, and Maya, you know, in your in your current, you know, role as a civil rights leader, I mean, that is the issue, right, is that we have this this sense as Americans that the system is so unequal and that it is so biased in favor of the wealthy and the powerful. And Donald Trump is both. He's not a real billionaire, but he is really, really rich. Right. And so the fact that he has to face the criminal justice system in the same way as an ordinary person, I actually think makes me feel better about the system. And it makes him mad, but it actually makes me glad. Your thoughts? Yeah. Uh, But I will also add, you know, he still has a lot of privileges. Absolutely. uh, A lot of other defendants wouldn't get. No mugshot, no perp walk. Uh, And frankly, he should be glad he's being called Mr. Trump and not just defendant because he's more humanized by being called Mr. Trump. So it's not as if he's being treated with any disrespect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to note because what we have seen as a tactic in terms of the public conversation, both from his attorneys and supporters, 
would argue he is being victimized when really the most important thing for every American to understand is, no, he's being treated in the way that any person should be treated, which is being treated and getting a fair opportunity to defend himself. Yeah. And he has the resources to do it. Uh, well, and Sonia, you know what, no, what most people wouldn't get? Like a year or two to walk around and go home after committing a crime. I mean, I still think about the fact, and you went through this in grave detail uh, with the committee, the people who barged into the Capitol and you know took dumps in the Capitol and beat up police officers, for the most part, went home to their homes, went back to their hotels casually after live streaming their crimes. And in many cases, it took a year for them to even be prosecuted. For Trump, it's taken two and a half years. And you all had a whole lengthy summer, you know, television special in which you, you know, put all of your evidence out. Most defendants who committed such serious crimes would not get two and a half years and a whole congressional hearing before they were actually charged. So in a way, Donald Trump has been treated better than anyone else would. Sure. I mean, there's so many cases that take years to investigate. And during that time, the defendants are free until they're charged. And yes, this did is now two and a half years since the actual events. But I think that during that time, the preview of evidence from the summer hearings, as you as you mentioned, it should he should have been on notice that this day was coming. He should have. And yet he was not. And I think the, the other piece of it is, um, Maya, for, you know, the, the right to a speedy trial, the right to a fair trial, it's the people versus Donald Trump. So the people also have rights. And, and you talked about this idea that they're going to try to delay. That seems to me to be an affront to our right, you know, as the people whose votes that he tried to steal. That's number one. And do you think that in order for this to be a fair trial, both for Trump, who has a right to it, and for the people, that it must be televised? You know, I, I can't help but draw one comparison. You know, we have people, many people, and they're mostly black and brown, been sitting in Rikers Island sometimes for two and three years because they can't afford bail. Uh, some of them, many of them nonviolent uh, offenses uh, that they're charged with but not convicted of uh, and wait a very long time to see a judge. So I just want to say that yeah. uh, to your point about, um, you know, speedy trial, lots of people would like a speedy trial. Sure. And when you are a defendant and you have strong facts in your favor, you do want to get there as quickly as you can to clear your name. Right. And to your point about the stakes, I mean, I think it's also a particularly interesting point about the delay. So to me, the uh, the, the point about the delay is, well, what happens if it was delayed until after election? So the people who have a right to determine who leads them don't get the benefit of seeing and understanding for themselves right. the full facts. And that also goes to televising. Yeah. This is one where it's very much our democracy at stake. Mm -hmm. The stakes, in fact, are much, much, much higher than many criminal trials where people, as we have said, sometimes languish in the system. So it's important. It's important. And Sumia, you know, I think the country benefited from you all not putting out just a report. And from the, in, the the investigative results being televised, you know, even though we did do some interpretation, Rachel Maddow and us all got together and sort of tried to broadcast for people who didn't see it. But the fact that you all put together something that we could that everyone could see, people who like Fox, people who like Newsmax, anyone could see it. I think that was actually important to the public. What do you make of the idea of a televised trial and how important do you think that would be? 
So I, I struggle with the idea of a televised trial. I think that, yes, the congressional investigation, we did have the uh, hearings. We put out an 800-page report. We also released all of the deposition transcripts, which I think is key in being transparent. I think the worry for a, uh, a televised trial is that there is a pressure to perform. And I think mm. it's telling that John Laura requested a uh, that the the courtroom, the trial be televised. So there is almost an indication there that this would turn into somewhat of a circus with his own attorney asking for it to be um, to be in the public arena in that manner. So I, I think relying on journalists like yourself to tell us what occurred during the day is is a better is a is a better uh, move for in terms of being transparent. Well, I would say that I, I I love that you said that, and I think and I appreciate that. But my concern is that the people at Fox are also going to interpret it. And they're not going to tell their viewers necessarily what happened because they didn't when it came to the election. And I worry that they're going to tell them something that didn't happen and say other things. But we'll see what happens. Maya Wiley and Sumia Dayananda, thank you both very much uh, for staying with us extra overtime for an additional segment. Who in the week is next? All right, y'all, you know what time it is. It is time to play. Who won the week? Well, we know it's not Donald Trump, but let's play the videotape. <laughs> Today on her 103rd birthday, we got justice. Her legacy is in good hands. Our family is standing together in solidarity to push forward. We're going to keep making sure Henrietta never dies, such as her healer cells never died. The family of Henrietta Lacks, who died in 1951 of cervical cancer and had her cells stolen, her family got an incredible settlement and justice for Henrietta Lacks. She won the week. That's tonight's readout. Hey, everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024, The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.